0: Welcome to the Digitally Native Podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Today is a day where we will be discussing all things AI, algorithms, and machine learning. I have a great guest with me today. Uh, Her name is Chennai Che. She's a senior program officer at the Mozilla Foundation. Very exciting. And uh, we'll get into that interview in just a few moments. Uh, I'll just add as well, this is a pre-recorded interview from late last year. Um, A lot of the content is still up to speed. However, as you know, AI is moving at a speed of lightning. Uh, And so a lot of things are changing. A lot of the conversation is moving quite quickly. However, in this podcast recording, we lay out the foundations for a little bit of that technical language in a very engaging and informal way. So I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. And The good thing about this episode, it's a two-part episode. We will start with a little bit of the brief background and then we'll get into a bit more of the meat and bones around data feminism and other things that Chennai is an expert in. But just as a quick introduction, you may have been reading up about things happening in the world, especially around AI in the last week, a lot of uh, topical things to pick up from the last episode where we talked about the ethics of AI, I'm a Formula One fan, so I read with interest about the Michael Schumacher family putting in a lawsuit against a German outlet that produced or generated an AI interview that they claimed was the first uh, interview that the Formula former Formula One champion had given since his skiing accident about a decade ago. And so... All these things are quite interesting at the moment. There's also this conversation about AI and um, hip hop and how it's generating songs that, you know, these big hip hop artists have not worked on at all. And so there's all these things that are happening right now. Um, I think as well, there was a a really interesting article about uh, a winner in a Sony competition, a photography competition, uh, who reproduced or created his his work through AI and won in a creative category and chose not to accept the award because he didn't think that AI generated photography was photography. And so all these questions are starting to come into play. What is art? And what role should mechanization of art take in us claiming that something is artistic? Or what does it mean when we imagine content that someone would produce if they could produce it but cannot and then package it as though it was something that they said or did or created. All very interesting and we will continue to have these conversations but then I'll just jump right into the conversation right now with Chennai. I really hope that you're going to enjoy it and that you're going to find it edifying and enlightening. Chennai has a really great character so she makes the conversation so much more exciting welcome to this episode of the digitally native podcast today i'm very excited to be joined by chennai che and i will give her the floor to introduce herself thank you so much chennai for making yourself available
1: thank you so much fungai i'm excited to be in conversation with you so a little bit about myself my name is chennai i'm a zimbabwean black feminist who works in tech and digital rights um, I've been working on the digital rights space focusing on internet access. I think I was probably one of the first people who started noticing how expensive data was in Zimbabwe because I was part of a tracking team um, when I was at Research ICT Africa. Also Mm -hmm. looked at really navigating issues around gender. So looking at um, how affordability is not just an issue of people not having money, but also societal issues. So um, worked at the Web Foundation where I was taking a look at um, gender and digital rights and how the issues are people issues impact people to get online, as well as what happens online with issues of online gender-based violence, culture, and social norms that, you know, mean most people are likely to be silent when they get into the online space. Um, and then I also have, and currently now at Mozilla Foundation as a senior program officer who works on our big data project called Common Voice. Um where we're trying to create open source data sets for people to create voice technology, as well as our Africa Innovation Project, um, where we're trying to build more programmatic work by Mozilla Foundation on the African continent. So that's more kind of my professional, like where I've been, but I've also been um, trying to really take on research for activism and really trying to put out information to other people with social science background, like myself, to think about like AI, data and privacy. Through Mm -hmm. my project called uh, My Data Rights, which is on mydatarights.africa, where I've really just been trying to understand the conversation on AI, privacy and data from a feminist perspective and also centering like African feminist thought, uh, because I often feel like most of the information that I've been consuming is quite North-centric and it's been like exciting to get like Latin American feminists and Southeast and Asian feminist work. But I really think there's more work that needs to be done um, Mm. by African feminists on these
0: issues. So that's really interesting, amazing work you're doing. Thank you so much for that very rich introduction to your work. I mean, there's so much to tap into from there. Um, And and a word or a um, thing that I kept hearing you uh, refer to is AI. And we just talked about this before we jumped on this, um, this recording is, you know, people have this very narrow or parochial idea of what AI is. And to many people, that's just something of a um Terminator kind of idea of a robot coming in and it's gonna destroy all of us and you know we're going to enter Armageddon um what is your understanding of AI artificial intelligence and 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 its uses in in social aspects of life so okay a lot of the times like I think the
1: the the AI is one of those things that need to be demystified so mm-hmm. um a lot of the times there's this a uh, what has been put in popular culture is cyborg world, you mm. know, having like little mm. robots running and like, like what you say, like Terminator and stuff. Uh, but there's actually a discourse of people who are kind of like the, the current conversations around AI are sort of like selling snake oil where we haven't actually gotten to... The, so the idea is that with artificial intelligence, um, you know, systems are able to think for themselves. Yes, mm-hmm. we work with them to develop them, but then they get to mm-hmm. the point where they're able to make their own decisions uh, without like human interruption. So mm-hmm. that's what we usually see on, on in, in different spaces. So it's actually, I mean, taking a definition from Mozilla Foundation and some of their work around trustworthy AI, it's actually considered like as a wide ranging branch of computer sciences, Uh, Mm -hmm. Where we're building up smart machines, which are capable of performing tasks that typically require human intelligence. So Mm -hmm. requiring that human intelligence, not necessarily like removing human intelligence. Um, But then again, to point out that there's that concern of like, what really makes something AI? And the Mm -hmm. idea is that um, there are markers that are developed to say that something is actually a sentient being. So... So far, the conversation is we haven't gotten to that point yet. However, we find that a lot of people are maybe dealing with like big data or making use of algorithms or machine learning and then labeling it as artificial intelligence. And then Mm -hmm. it's sold as like, you know, it's the AI that's made the decision at the end of the day. But actually, Mm -hmm. it's maybe a completely different um, practice that has been put into place. So... Yeah, I guess AI is sort of like encompassing all the super fast, big technology that's coming out there relying on data. But mm-hmm. if you were to go like really rigid on what defines an AI, the conversation is, have we actually gone to that point yet?
0: Oh, that's interesting, because I think that the next thing that I was going to say when you were talking, I was thinking, oh, is that machine learning? Um, and then now you've added this little bit of complexity to say, well, that's not, the; those are components of it. But then it's, it's, it's a growing and living area of study. And, you know, it's it's all these different parts that come into it. Now, I, I, just before we get into anything to do with data itself, I think you also brought something up that stumps a lot of people. When you start trying to explain how, for, for instance, digital and social media work, once you throw in algorithm, the word algorithm, you know, a lot of people are like, what is that and why does that matter for me to know? Um, and... I would like to hear your perspective about that. Right. So
1: um, uh, I think when we think about the algorithm, particularly most of us are being introduced to it, if we interact a lot with social media, or if you mm-hmm. interact a lot with like an online platform that asks you to put information and then mm-hmm. determines your score or something like that,
0: mm-hmm. it is
1: sort of like pulling together um So I know the people who know data science more will probably come in and explain better, (laughs) but I think the idea is just generally having like, once you've got all of this, um, I know you didn't want us to get into data, but we have to get into data. Go ahead. Go ahead. Answer this question. So it's kind of like when you've got like these large volumes of data considered, you know, usually considered as big data, where mm-hmm. you've got like this structured, unstructured and semi-structured data um, that then now needs to be processed in order for us to develop insights or predict Mm -hmm. things or have an analysis of something that's happening what then Mm -hmm. happens is that the algorithm is something that's run over so it's like a a system that's there for you then to be able to run over this like data that's like big and Mm -hmm. like comes at high speeds for you then to be able to determine um something that comes out of that so you develop Mm -hmm. an algorithm say for example to determine if someone is um is worthy of receiving a loan so right. large pieces of data are, are pulled together and then, you know, the system is run and then it gives you a yay or nay. And then, right. you know, that's when the system is kind of like using that algorithm. So right. that again is replacing that human, adding on to that human intelligence. So that the mm-hmm. loan officer doesn't have to sit with like 20,000 applications, mm-hmm. but you have like the system that's able to pull off all of the information and then say, mm-hmm. okay, this kind of person who fits this category is a yes, this other person is a no.
0: Right, right. And I, I mean, from the most simplest spaces like Facebook and all these social media platforms we use are using algorithms, using these formulas to kind of aggregate information about each one of us to then tailor content to us and I think one of the conversations that comes in with algorithms is always around ethics um if you don't know that your data is being collected and you know processed through this big machine that's you know figuring you out is that something that, people should be aware of, you know, when they sign up for anything, when they're like putting any kind of data out there, is it their right to be made aware that this information will be used in this way? Or are we at a point at this point in time where the social nature of wanting to connect is just so much more important that we don't really care anyway to know what our data is used for?
1: So so basically everyone has the right to privacy. Uh, in some places it's like constitutionally protected and then it boils down to information privacy. So Mm -hmm. when it comes to data, um, the assumption is that like most of these companies, because of what, uh, you know, like of the European laws that we have, such as the general data protection regulation, um, Mm -hmm. and then at a country level, there are some laws and and legislations in place. Companies are meant to inform you how they're going to, to use your data and, um, but then they use legalistic language where sometimes it's like, we will give this data to third parties and you don't know who the third parties are. But in essence, this raises the conversation of consent in the information space because consent at this current moment is like, okay, you want to download this app. Before you download this app, this this big box that comes up and says, please, can you tick, uh, can you read these, like 200 terms and conditions? Right, and then. And then there's in tiny font, and then the yes or no box is quite big. So you're scrolling down to say right. acceptance and conditions and have mm-hmm. access to your tool. I actually mm-hmm. recently um, finished a study that we, I worked on the colleague Tinaswa Maka, which was sponsored by Internews ADAPT uh, project, where we were trying to really assess, you know, that lived experience of data by African feminists and how we can then res- develop resistance. Um, And half the time participants were just talking about like, um, yes, I know there's a right to privacy and yes, I can click a consent box, but I just really can't keep track of Mm -hmm. where my data ends up, Mm -hmm. how it's being used. But as far as they're concerned, as long as they have a record that says I accepted, you know, it's Mm -hmm. quite difficult to challenge um, Mm -hmm. where your data ends up. And just to add on to that, like there's also a difference in the way that people's information is protected. If you are mm. in Europe, your data right. is more protected than if you are in an African, in certain African countries. Mm. Um, with the South African, I think it was South African uh, Information Agency, uh, tried to, you know, engage Facebook, well Meta, mm. when it changed mm. its privacy policy. I think it was earlier on this year. Um, mm. They just generally didn't show up. But if mm. it had been like a European court, they had to make sure right. that their privacy policy met those standards.
0: Right, right, and so. Uh, you know, all of this is really interesting information, and I think anyone who's in the digital space kind of has a sense of this information or this knowledge. And I've also, like, I mean, when you try to tell people about these things, sometimes there is that kind of, well, you know, does it really matter? I'm not an important person. They're not going to watch me. They're not surveilling me. You know, so what? They they have my data. They know me down down to a T. Down to like the T. Um, how how does that? How do you then go about? making people very uh, conscious or active in, you know, wanting to protect their, 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 their data, wanting to be conversant in conversations around uh, privacy and, and, you know, just really being uh, wanting to do something about with this knowledge and information. How, do, how do you go about that in your work?
1: Making the information as simple as possible
0: mm-hmm. and also,
1: you know, trying to work through people's fears A lot Mm -hmm. of it. So when we were when I was doing this, when we were doing this research, it really surfaced how people were aware that, you Mm -hmm. know, systems knew everything that they did and they were a little bit uncomfortable, but it made their life better. And then through a methodology where we were asking them to track how they interacted and the systems they interacted with, it moved into kind of like a discourse of being afraid. That like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I I can't do anything because of the amount of data that people can take from me Mm -hmm. um, and use it and use it to to profile me. Because a lot of the times people just think at an individual level, your right to privacy is protected at a constitutional level um, or in in the existing law. But it also Mm -hmm. affects us at a community level. So Mm -hmm. as black women being shadow banned on like social media, because our content is flagged, um, you know, not having access to a financial loan because you belong to a, um, a group that's considered more risky. So your life is going to be more difficult being a foreigner. And the moment you flag your ID and the system says, we can't give you the service, even if you qualify. Mm -hmm. So then for me, it's, I mean, they wouldn't have identified, me as a black, my form doesn't say black women, but there's mm. certain indicators that are listed that are able for them to say that group of people are not likely to be able to be successful. And half the time, it's always marginalized groups at the right. end of the day. Right. So it's, it's then working on t- figuring out the tools and mechanisms that people can start off by themselves at the smallest level. So say, for example, um with this project we did a podcast and someone listened to it and they wrote back and said i didn't realize that i could decline cookies Mm -hmm. and still have access to a certain site Mm -hmm. um so there's more so that awareness of like on what platform am i engaging with and what can i do but Mm -hmm. i think more so the onus is on the people with the skills and the money and the ability to be more conscious about data And privacy Mm -hmm. and be Mm -hmm. more intentional about the things that we do, because at the end of the day, you and I are just like small people in it. But if we come together as a group of people, we can put pressure on these entities to actually start doing better in the way that they interact and inform people about how data is used.
0: Right. And and you mentioned something really interesting. I think we hear it a lot, shadow banning, but... Not many people have an idea of what exactly that means or what it is and looks like. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, this is something that I
1: covered in a report that we did. I did with a policy called Afrofeminist Data Futures. So, mm-hmm. in essence, shadow banning is kind of like um, your posts aren't showing up or they're mm-hmm. hidden in in terms of comments, um, and it's really quite interesting that people. People who really realize that people were quite active and rely on social media for engagement and connections. So half the time that's when someone goes like, I think I've been shadow banned on this topic of people seeing my comments. But if you're not a person who's like not who doesn't rely on social media as a, you know, doesn't rely on those metrics of engagement for the work that you do, you're probably going to be shadow banned and never know. So then, um, and I think this is then something that for me, I've seen more so kind of like engaging with feminists where they've said, like, if they've spoken about like violence, um, you know, they can get Shandra Band on grounds of misandry and Mm -hmm. they're just like, yeah, but you know, I'm not, the likelihood of me harming someone is quite low, Mm -hmm. but with misogyny, it's, it's, it's really going to be high. So that's actually quite interesting in terms of, um, how people get to find out they've been shadow banned yeah. and also just also highlighting the fact that most people don't have the language of, of going like I've been shadow banned until someone actually goes like, what should, this is what you're doing. Right.
0: Right. And I mean, I've, I've seen this as well on TikTok and spaces where people have like maybe even over a million followers and then they have to start another account because they've just been banned on TikTok. They, you know, they've been told that they're not meeting the, the platform's guidelines and rules, but then you know, they can't actually identify where and how they violated those rules. So ultimately, it's, you know, this reminder that you are at the you are at the mercy of of the platform providers. Um, you know, we have this content that we believe is ours. But, you know, if tomorrow you are just basically taken off the platform, where does that data sit? And and how do you then rebuild a community and a network and a following? So all these things are quite interesting. Um, and I think we've kind of given the listeners an idea of what data science and what you know the, the, the ethics around data are looking at and looking like. And maybe now I can just zone in a little bit more and ask you about data feminism itself and what that is and what that looks like.
1: All right. Um, so data feminism, I think has been a term uh, particularly popularized and coined by uh, Lauren Klein and Catherine D'Ignazio through their book, actually also titled Data Feminism. So the idea around that is actually then having a framework for thinking about data science. Um, so data science, like all of those, that's that full of thought around data mm-hmm. and the ethics um, around it, which for, from a data feminism perspective is guided by intersectional feminism. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, data can make our lives better, but how do we then, you know, go through this data, do the analytics, report back on it in a way that is actually self-aware of who is doing it and who's part of the process, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, takes into account the risks involved of collecting that data or analyzing that data that belongs to a particular set of people, Um, and also in a way that takes into account like power. Because at the end right. of the day, the person who's who, with the ability to do the analysis and like the data, and holds the data has the power, versus the person who's like you know producing the information and getting it out there, or the different spaces where the information comes from. Right. So that it really is the, then taking on that like intersectional approach um, to, to to the issues that exist in data.
0: And can you explain what you mean by intersectional feminism, just for anyone who might not understand what that means?
1: Sure. So intersectional feminism was a term coined by Kimbell Crenshaw, um, a theory where basically Kimbell was looking at how people were experiencing the legal system, um, women in particular, but thinking of how different our different identities and other points in which we interact with actually um, add a layer to how we it, experience injustice so i think this is why i actually started by saying i'm a black feminist woman in tech Mm -hmm. it's because Mm -hmm. when i interact with the technological space my identity is in terms of race determines Mm -hmm. how people interact with me and Mm -hmm. like some of the opportunities or challenges that come are layered by that then in addition to that being a woman as well creates that additional layer of injustice where Mm -hmm. then okay you identify as black and as a woman you might be treated more differently than a white woman or 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 a woman of Indian um, or an Indian woman. And then in addition to that, um, how you can also like your economic background, your educational background actually also furthers that area of injustice. And so Mm -hmm. I think I like um, also how Sylvia Tamale talks about uh, intersectional feminism by taking into account like our colonial history um, Mm -hmm. into that as well to then say, because We've been, you know, you you're part of a colonized nation, or a continent. The, your experience of injustice is also layered into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Patricia Hill Collins talk, talks about like domains of um, domains of power. And I think mm-hmm. what's interesting for me is how sometimes you know the oppressed can be the oppressor as well Mm -hmm. so really Mm -hmm. thinking about like that that intersectional those intersectional underlying issues of um, injustice and then how it's important to assess society from that perspective so that we don't have a one-size-fits-all solution to then say Mm -hmm. okay all the black women are suffering so let's just give Mm -hmm. them you know like this kind of system to make their life better.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's so interesting. I mean, even uh, what you've just mentioned about um, colonization having an impact. And there's a whole conversation as well about data colonization um, and and how there's this new colonization that's happening as a result of data. Do you have any um, thoughts or perspectives on that as well? Yeah, so I think... One of the things that's emerging around the
1: conversation around data colonization is generally how, you know, companies are moving to places with that colonial history or interacting with people with that colonial history and extracting information. And mm-hmm. then, so it's kind of like the movement of data from like you're you're the the raw data producer, and then mm-hmm. they go and then they do things to it, and then they come back and place their algorithms and whatnot have uh, have you mm-hmm. on on that continent. um and I think when when I think about data colonialism, it's also quite interesting how people ref- think about it, say, for example, of um surveillance cameras being developed mm-hmm. in China. And then being deployed in African countries, collecting black faces so that they can improve mm-hmm. their systems to sell mm-hmm. um in European markets. But there's mm-hmm. no benefit back to those. Um, well, the benefit is, is increased surveillance,
0: mm-hmm. but they're being mm-hmm.
1: sold in, in, in like you know, authoritarian regions or highly surveilled regions with the surveillance it doesn't mean safety, it actually means giving people more harm. Mm-hmm. Um, so really there's um work that's being done around digital extraction so Mm -hmm. like how you can you find that like in core areas like refugee camps or slums that's where the data set cleaning happens Mm -hmm. um and they're paid the lowest and then it's outsourced i think there's currently a case right now with a kenyan in kenya about um someone challenging meters meters basically said we're not part of the system because they outsource it but they're actually challenging the work conditions and in that space
0: Thank you so much for listening in. I really hope that you got something valuable out of this episode and that you will listen in for the second part of it. As always, I invite you to share your thoughts or opinions and perspectives on anything to do with digitality or this episode through our Twitter account, which you can find at Native Podcast. Alternatively, you can send us an email at info at digitallynativepodcast.com. That is info at digitallynativepodcast.com. I really look forward to interacting with you and hearing your thoughts and comments. All ideas are welcome as long as they pertain to the digital world. We're all learning together and that is the great part about it. Thank you and do take care. And until the next episode, please do have sunny mornings and calm evenings. Bye bye.